Welcome to the Whole Story Podcast. This podcast series is focused on inspiring sustainability in agriculture using the framework of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, also known as the SDGs. Each week, our guests are invited to share their story and leave us with some practical tips for sustainability on farms. I'm Bex Smith, founder of The Whole Story, a B Corp certified social enterprise inspiring, facilitating and articulating holistic sustainability in agriculture. And this podcast has been brought to life in partnership with the incredible team at FMG, who are passionate about partnering with organisations like The Whole Story, so together we can support rural New Zealand. So whatever you're doing while listening to this episode, thanks for choosing us. The best way you can support our mahi is to follow and share the show on whatever app you're listening on, and I hope this episode leaves you inspired and excited about the bigger picture of sustainability in agriculture. Today on the Whole Story podcast, I am so grateful to be joined by Nick Gill. Nick has been one of the most impactful people I have had the experience of working with throughout my career so I am incredibly humbled to bring his voice to you all. He is an Australian, so don't hold that against him. But Nick is also the General Manager at New Zealand's first organic regenerative carbon zero winery, Greystone Wines, and the other half of the powerhouse duo running the food farm alongside his wife, Angela Clifford. The food farm is their Tūranga Waiwai, their place to stand, a place where they connect with the earth and organically grow annual and perennial vegetables berries and tree crops. They have a young food forest, a traditional orchard and espaliered fruit trees, Wiltshire sheep, Peking ducks, Wessex saddleback pigs, cob 500 meat chickens, barred rock and brown shaver laying hens, jersey milking cows and honeybees. They save heirloom seeds, host woofers and now have a yurt for hosting educational and engagement events, connecting others with food and empowering people with tools to take into their own home gardens. Nick is also a family man. He talks a lot in this episode about where he's come from, his family roots, the connection with food that came from becoming a father, and now the importance of farming and the legacy he leaves for his children. And we even get an emotional insight into the response of a father seeing a sneak preview of his 17-year-old daughter in a formal dress. But he also offers some great practical tips on mindset, diversity, and the all-important topic of taking action. So welcome along today, everybody. Today on the podcast, we've got Nick Gill. Now, Nick's going to be wearing multiple hats, but firstly, Nick, welcome. And can you tell us a little bit about you, introduce who you are, where you're from, and what you're doing? Thanks, Bex. Yeah, totally. I'd just like to open with a peppy half, if it's okay. Um, Chula Koto, Kor Mokkeli Tomoka, Kor White Blue Kai Takahali Matua, Old Greystone Wines, the Food Farm, Takumahi, Nor Ahe Telelia Oho, Ingari, Kor Brimfield Toku, Kanya Nayane, Kor Gil Toku Iwa Fano, Kor Nick Toku Iwa, Nor Leila Tena Koto, Tena Koto, Tena Koto Kato. Kia ora. thank you for that. So I grew up in Australia and have been here for about 20 years, but now I call Nocatelli on Mount Grey my mountain here in North Canterbury and White Red is my river. Uh, growing up in Australia, I rolling my R's, I just find so hard, you know, I've been practicing rolling my R's and it's still pretty rubbish. But the cool thing is that my oldest daughter actually wrote that guitar for me, so she's Australian as well, but we left Australia when she was eight months old. 
to match to her discussion, she's got an Australian passport, not a Kiwi one, uh, which her two Kiwi siblings love to tease her about. And she's at UC studying science, but also was minoring in um, Indigenous studies in Toronto. So it was really nice that she's been able to teach me that, you know, I've been practicing and being able to say it and explain what it means. So, yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. And it's something that I'm sort of working on growing and evolving myself is that connection with culture, you know, kind of, I guess, connecting with heritage, but also connecting with the culture of the place you live and what that actually means to you as an individual in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I think my pepiha is on, I guess, version 3.0, but it continues to evolve over time as I find an authentic connection with how to express that, that I guess captures um, both what's important to my heritage and my current place of living. Yeah, totally. I I think it also makes me a little bit sad to think like I did on my schooling in Australia and we learned nothing about Indigenous people in Australia. We learned about Mesopotamia and I know a few Maori words now and I know almost no Aboriginal words, which is pretty sad. Yeah, it's a lifelong learning, I think, like journey that we go on and yeah, the fact that you're making that effort within in the culture of New Zealand and where you live is, is pretty special. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. And so I guess a little bit about the different hats you're wearing today. Do you want to give us a little bit of a background as to those two hats you might be donning? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So in there, um, Mamahi is uh, Grace and Wines in the food farm. So we came here from Aussie in 2004. Back then I sort of was a specialist in converting farms to vineyards. Uh, implanted Greystone Vineyard and over that time have sort of been the vineyard manager slash viticulturist and now I'm the business manager, general manager at Greystone Wines and um, at home we also have a little property called the Food Farm which we like to think of or describe as an intergenerational small farm. Angelo writes for Lifestyle Block magazine but we really don't like calling it a lifestyle block. I think Growing up on a farm in Australia, you know, it's only six hectares, but it's just important to me that we were able to sort of keep in touch with that because I mostly spend my day job is, you know, emails and meetings and that sort of thing. So being able to have a few sheep and cows and all the rest of it and grow our own food is really important to us. And also we teach other people how to do that who are interested. So we have Woofers Day with us from all over the world and we run uh, courses for our local community. So we just had one last weekend on how to plant your vegetable garden and how to sow seedlings because you know particularly after COVID and with the cost of food and everything there's a lot of people trying to grow their own food and you go into the local garden center at the moment buy a tomato plant and give them your 10 bucks or something plant it out not knowing and then just watch it die in a frost yeah and that happens and it's kind of crazy we have all sorts of people come to land with us that are either some of them I'm sure know way more than us and it's like, oh my God, we, you should be teaching me. And, uh, and other people, uh, right at the start of their journey, yeah, literally tomatoes and potatoes can't get frosted or buying beetroot seedlings and planting them out doesn't really work because root crops don't transplant very well. So stuff like that. And so you do all sorts of things. So the day job is running a certified organic regenerative winery, We're totally vertically integrated. Um, so we grow the grapes, make it wine, bottle it and package it and send it overseas to about 14 countries themselves. And when I'm not doing that home on the farm, chasing teenagers around or trying to get them out of bed and, you know, contribute something and grow our own food. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, you talk about me having busy days, but that is a lot to juggle. You guys do it pretty well. And interesting talking about the, the gardening classes and stuff. I've actually just started myself. I like to think I'm reasonably green-fingered, but 
you sort of don't know what you don't know. And there's a lot of things that I struggle with growing veggies and I'd like to grow more because I think it's really important for us to be, I guess, quite self-sufficient as a family. And it's there's something really meaningful about the connection to food and knowing where your food comes from and creating that for our kids. So yes, I've started attending a local gardening class series and yeah, covering exactly that right back to basics. Like how do you make a garden? How do you make compost? How do you run a worm farm? How do you make seedling mix and plant seedlings? And yeah, so much I didn't even realize that I didn't know. So looking forward to this year's garden being a lot more successful, especially carrots and parsnips. Ugh. Oh my God. Well, you know, they're pretty hard carrots and parsnips. You know, things with big seeds are easiest, potatoes and beans and peas and corn and that sort of stuff. But they carrots and parsnips, they take a really long time to grow. You know, like parsnips, you got to plant them soon. You probably have a big garden, so it's fine. But if you've got a small garden, Growing parsnips when they're in your garden for what seven months, you know, a lot of people can't afford their room. Make sure, make sure your parsnips eat as fresh. Yes, that was what I learned this week, and I tell you what, mm. I reckon that's how I've failed every single year. So that's the take-home tip from this podcast: make sure your parsnips eat as fresh. <laughs> yeah, they're so hard to grow. The funny thing is, that we'd let some go to seed, and they're freaking rampant in in one of their orchards now. And some people have a reaction to them when they're weeding around them. Have you ever seen that? Ah, no. I've never grown any enough to even realise. Some people can almost get like welts on their arms because, you know, they're in that proliferate family, which can be a bit crazy. Yeah, so some people can react to the foliage. And I, you know, I've sort of started weed whacking it because we've got a house count. I'm not sure that eating parsnip tops is probably a good idea, you know. <laughs> I love that you're weed whacking parsnips. That's brilliant. <laughs> So I guess back to the topic, because we could digress into veggies for hours, I'm sure. Back into the topic at hand, sustainability. I mean, it's core to the whole stories business, and it means so many different things to different people, Nick. So I want to hear, what does sustainability mean to you? Yeah, I was thinking about it. It's quite a hard one to answer because, like, it's easy to trot out the, you know, the four things environmental and fiscal and social and whatever, but the started my journey was thinking about what it wasn't. So I grew up on a farm in the north of South Australia, about an hour and a half north of Adelaide. I'm in wheat and sheep country, really super light soil, like really, really sandy. <clears throat> so it's quite normal in the farms here. We've got um, the edges of the paddocks got up like that. But before um, herbicide, the only way to kill the weeds was to cultivate. And then you'd get a windstorm and the roly-poly bushes like you see in the movies would hit the fence and then the sand hits the fence and buries the fence. It can happen one night. So you just put another fence on top of it and like their farm had three fences stacked, one on top of the other, dunk, 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 and the paddocks at the edges went up like that. So that's not sustainability. And then we got you know more and more herbicides, particularly selective residual herbicides, and then... In our community where I grew up, everyone dies of cancer. And you can't help noticing how nobody dies of almost anything else. All the old farmers die of cancer. And right. I had um, cousins with, born with birth defects and stuff like that. And that's when I really started thinking about Like, Of course, my grandpa used to mix caffeine with his hands, and that's not ideal. So that sort of started us off on the organic journey. And then I studied at university in... When I finished university, air farms, economics changed because Australia had a, a system of stockpiling walls. The wool prices were too low. And China sort of said, well, we're just not going to buy your wool until you sell us your entire stockpile. So air wool prices crashed from $8 to sort of 2 um, And the economics of air farm changed. At the time, 
the wine industry was taking off and I'd met my now wife, Angela, she was in the wine industry and Rag University and I'd come out of a, like a three or four hour soil prank where you've measured the infiltration of water through a soil column and she'd come out drunk because she'd done a wine <laughs> a wine prank <laughs> and I thought, no, that looks great, I'll go and do that. So got into wine and worked for Penfolds in the Barossa and I left the Barossa to come to New Zealand and for lots of reasons, but one of them was we were just pumping so much water from the Murray River in South Australia and pumping it 200 kilometres to grow wine grapes. You know, we'd grow without irrigation, but we were just making a yield higher. <clears throat> so in my head, that's not sustainability either. And then we moved to New Zealand and I was just awestruck by the amount of water here. Like I, I grew up in a very, very dry environment. Like if we drive over a river, which you never did, you'd look on the road, you know, you'd look in there to see if there was water and there was never water. Like these are flash flood creeks. And, you know, to me, there's just water everywhere here. But I wasn't aware of the issues about, you know, nitrification and that sort of stuff um, until I'd been here a bit longer. So, yeah, I suppose wrapping it all up is you're trying to leave it better than when you started, you know, and, and also we know it's got to be financially sustainable. Otherwise, you, you can't survive. And you've got to ideally look after your people because they're what makes it all go as well and your animals and all that stuff. So we've all had it. The, you know, four tiers of sustainability trotted out before, but bringing them all together in a way that's meaningful for you and your place, which will be different from Greystone Wines, it's different to the food farm, it's different to a potato grower or a dairy farmer or whatever. It's a bit like region, isn't it? It's just a set of principles that you apply to your place and the way that works for you. Yeah, and I think that's the real importance behind these things right is finding that meaningful connection for yourself because if you're just spouting a definition from a textbook or dictionary or a list of principles created by someone else or rules to follow from someone else then it doesn't carry that meaning and therefore first of all you're less likely to actually want to try and work towards it or achieve it because it doesn't mean something to you Um, but also it's kind of meaningless it's just words on a piece of paper um, or on a screen yeah yeah exactly I, I think I wouldn't use the words improvement because that sort of sounds a bit hard, but my, I hope, for instance, when we hand the food farm on, that, you know, it's a really diverse, resilient system that can weather whatever the future's going to look like. For Greystone, it would be that it's in a similar fashion, but I think the issue with the wine business is it's, at the moment, really relying on monocultureing for wine businesses to survive. There's only a tiny bit at the top for that and obviously this commodity wine lights like Sauvignon Blanc and stuff which we don't really work in so I hope for Greystone it'll be a diverse business so I'd like to incorporate other parts of the property and what we've got in terms of farming know-how into a wine business that's what we're looking to do really. Yeah it's really cool no I think and it's key point you touched on there is that resiliency piece and sustainability right creating businesses that can carry on and carry on that legacy really. Yeah, the resilience makes you almost sound like a shield or something that you can just put on, but it's not like that. It's constant hard work working yeah. on it. And it's just another one of the things that you've got to fit into your farming day, whether you're selling wine in Beijing or moving the brake fence for the cows. It's another thing that, but if you can hold it there, my sort of way of thinking about it is that when you're making decisions, if you're holding that in your head as well, then every time you 
you're inching a little bit closer to that and, and those goals, you never really achieve them. It's like anything where you're just sort of trying to move along and continue. And if you're a complete finisher like me, you have to really to get in your head. You can't, you never tick that box, you know, that you just got to keep moving along and take joy in that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for want of a better word, it really is a journey, isn't it? To go on this sustainability thing. You'll never reach it, tick it off and, and move on. It's an iteration yeah. every single minute of every single day. Yeah. Yeah. You've got yeah. to take joy in that. Otherwise it's, it'll be too punishing. You wouldn't do it. Yeah. yeah. It's okay for me. I'm quite comfortable with that real adaptive, like just go with the flow yeah. and, and keep on rolling. <laughs> yeah. No, when I was at Penfolds, which was at the time, that one of the biggest wine companies in the world, they spent a lot of time on psychometric testing, and that was in their late 90s, and they basically do that and then work out how to leverage it, basically, is what happens. But, you know, I really struggled with not finishing jobs, so they would put me into half-finished projects and stuff like that, and that would be because I'd just be like, oh, I have to finish this now, like, it's just annoying me. And so, yeah, people that didn't quite get something over the line, that was my role for a little while, was finishing vineyard developments or capital projects and stuff like that. As I've gotten older, it's got easier understanding that there's these things that you can't actually finish. I still struggle with it, to be honest, but I've got better at just accepting it. I tell you what, people like you that get things done and find real purpose in completing jobs are such an asset. So what an amazing skill set to have. Well, it's, uh, I used to love cultivating because, <laughs> you know, you know, dirty Terrible secret. When you know, when you're looking at 150 acre, 200 acre paddock, and you've cultivated it, and it's turned from white brown to dark brown, it's incredibly gratifying. And I'll never do it again in my life. But man, satisfying in some sense. I'm not sure why. <laughs> like that to do list, right? Do you have a do you yeah. to do list? Do yeah. I, every day I have a. I've got like different ones for days and weeks and months and years. Yeah, yeah. So we've touched on there a couple of times your upbringing and your background. But I wonder if you could bridge the gap a little bit on how we went from childhood Nick in Australia to now where you are. Um, yes, yeah, so, yeah, so I grew up on a family farm surrounded by all the extended family who are all still farming exactly the same way, growing mostly wheat and barley in our feedlot and cattle as well. Um, and back in the day, you had to be able to drive a tractor straight with your eyes. And now, of course, if the GPS goes down, they all just sit there and play on their phones until the GPS comes back up. So you couldn't possibly pilot equipment of that size without the GPS. And went to Roseworthy University, which is a little bit like the South, the Australian version of Lincoln, um, and studied uh, applied egg science and did all that. And at the time, herbicide studies was taking off. So dabbled in a little bit in looking at how to study PhDs and stuff and decided that wasn't for me. And he was trying to work out what to do because I, I was kind of meant to go home to the farm in the middle of nowhere, but I'd met Angela and there's no way she was going back to a farm in the middle of nowhere. And so sort of, in a way, fortunately... The farm just wasn't going to be economic to be on. Um, it's twelve hundred acres, and you know the average farm size there now would be fifteen, twenty thousand upwards. Um, usually across multiple regions as well. So you started to apply for jobs in the wine industry and started off at the absolute base level, pruning grapevines in the Barossa Valley in the winter time, and spent a couple of weeks covered in mud pruning grapevines and got my paycheck and just thought, oh my god, this is rubbish. Like that was really hard work. I have to get into management. So I started applying for management jobs. I had, you won't believe this, I had dreadlocks back then. And, and of course, couldn't get a job. You know, you applied for corporate jobs to show, you know, cut the beer and everything. And I didn't, I'd actually got no training in wine like whatsoever. 
But at the time, if you had an understanding of plant science and soil science, and particularly knew how chapters and hydraulics work and stuff like that, you were in. So I got into the first cadet ship for pinfolds, which was really cool. It was, it was, and then I had to move every six months to a different vineyard in Australia. And so Angela and I, we'd been together for a little while then. Uh, we actually had to not split up, but we had a long distance relationship for two years. She went to Sydney and worked in the corporate wine world. And I moved around different parts of Australia and every six months, the moving truck would come and pick up all my gear and I'd pick up my dog and <clears throat> man, the moving guys were nuts. If I didn't mark something, they just packed that too. So I accidentally ended up with other people's house stuff and all sorts of things and moved across Australia and then ended up um, being a vineyard development guy for Pinsoles and I think around about 2002, he was the vineyard manager for Pinfolds in the Barossa Valley, which is the one that grows all the really expensive wines, so like range and stuff like that. So the last vintage I did in the Barossa was 2004, and we grew a cabernet from this thing called Block 42, and the vines are 130 years old. And there was no tractors then, so they're not planted straight, so they're all wibbly wobbly. They don't, they grow about a trellis and stuff. And when they released that wine, it was $16,000 a bottle. Yeah, it's not a wine, it's they're fashion icons at that level. They're like, um, you know, handbags and things like that. And that wasn't terribly gratifying for me because no one's ever going to drink it. People buy those wines and just put it on their shelf and trade it or it gets gifted in China and stuff like that, which is a bit crazy because you've busted your nuts growing it and it tastes amazing and no one's going to drink it. And then was thinking, oh my God, the bad business was getting bigger and bigger and I was spending all my time in union meetings and stuff like that. It was the most unionised vineyard workforce in Australia. So you'd end up with union guys that come in and shut the site down, pulse for a union meeting, which you don't get that stuff like that here. And, and lots of argy-bargy, which wasn't really me. And then I got asked to come and look at this job developing vineyard in the South Island of New Zealand. And Angela's from Christchurch. And we just had Ruby. And it's like, Jesus Christ, having a baby's pretty tough. And some grandparents would be handy. Because <laughs> mine, mine were in South Australia, but they were like eight hours drive away. And I always loved New Zealand, actually. It was sort of like Australia 30 years ago. And I loved just being able to talk to my employees. I didn't have to go through a union rep or anything like that. Um, yeah, so we moved here. We moved here in August 04. And then we bought what is now the food farm in 2005, built a house as quickly as we could and got into it. And it was when you start feeding little babies, you start really thinking about the food that you're feeding them. You're going to buy an organic chicken or something. It was so expensive. Um, so we were in our first rental at Tuahiwi. I ripped up the garden and we planted it with vegetables and I got some meat birds. We used to kill chickens and sheep and stuff on the farm, but I couldn't really remember how to do it. And I don't even know if there was really, there probably was YouTube, but I didn't know how to use it. So I just sort of made it up. <laughs> and we killed our first batch of chickens at a rental. And then we cooked them in the crock pot with lots of vegetables and froze them into little ice cube trays for ruby, you know, baby food. They never look back, really. It's just evolved from there. Yeah. You know, when you have kids and you really connect to, I don't know why we don't seem to think about it so much for ourselves until you kind of have normally those moments where you're actually having to nourish another human being and you go, holy moly, what have we been putting into our bodies? And yeah, what choices do we want to make or how could we do this better for the next generation? I think that's such a reflective time in your life. The worst thing is it's the busiest time in your life, right? Like you're absolutely yeah, yeah. mental busy and now all of a sudden you're trying to like learn how to grow food and start from scratch and make everything from scratch. And For me it was also, I had a little bit of 
residual knowledge still on the back of my brain about MRLs and LD50s and how they calculate what's safe. I just wasn't happy with the science, for yeah. instance. You know, if this amount kills that rat and then we times it up to the weight of the human and divide it into 50% of the population, whatever the bloody numbers are. So, oh, that's a little bit sketchy. I don't think I'm really up for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's such an interesting journey, like going through how you've got to here and what you're doing now. That was quite a funny story about your chickens. However, I think you might have some more gems there. So I wonder if you could tell us your funniest story relating to farming or agriculture. Well, yeah, I was thinking about this actually. So my mum, who sadly passed away from breast cancer, um, had a reputation in the local area as the snake catching. So, you know, back in the day, if the snake was in the wrong spot, you, you killed it, basically. And, and mum was a lover of all wild mice. And one day... The neighbours down the road rang, who of course were also gills, and Uncle Brett rang and said, you know, there's a snake in the nursery. And my dad, who'd answered the phone, said, well, I'm just finishing lunch and then we'll come down. Because Uncle Brett had this enormous native tree nursery. <clears throat> so we all bundled in the ute after we finished our mill and, and went down to the next farm. We were sort of stomping over to the where all the trees are and Auntie Jane came running out and said, no, no, it's in the house. And Dad's like, what? And uh, so we go in the house and there's a great big brown snake curled up under my cousin's bassinet. So it wasn't in the it wasn't in the tree nursery, it was in the baby nursery. But of course the two guys on the phone hadn't managed to communicate adequately to get this message across. So yeah, we ended up mum went and got a rake and there's this little baby in our cot. And uh, she did the old trick with the rake. She used to always just pin it's not like you see on TV nowadays where they pick them up by the tail. Mum was self-taught. She used to always just give her head down and picked it up. And she'd got in the ute. And I have lots of memories of sitting in the ute with mum driving the ute. And mum would be happily sitting there with a snake, like all curled up around. And we'd be relocating a snake for a couple of kilometres. So we took this bloody snake. And that family still tells the story how my dad said, no, nah, buggy that, I'm going to finish my meal before I come down. Because he thought the snake was in the trees, but it was in with a baby in the baby's room. So that's an exciting afternoon. <laughs> Trust an Aussie to bring a funny snake cat to the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. that's so good. Yeah, and they always used to wrap themselves up her arm as well. So she'd have, well, and that was a real long line. It was probably five feet or something like that. And they were always brown snakes there. Yeah, so mum used to catch them. And then her job was to drive the car. And when we were a long way away, she'd un unwrap them and throw it out in the bush and off we go again instead of, you know, resorting to the spade or the shotgun, which is what most people did back then. Probably still do, to be honest. It's you're not meant to, but people were lazy. Yeah, and so probably for people who in the audience who don't know about brown snakes, are they a dangerous type of snake? Oh, they're like one of the most dangerous ones in the world, yeah. Yeah, they're really dangerous. You don't want to get bitten by a brown snake, yeah. Yeah, no. I grew up in Papua New Guinea, so quite sort of well-versed with snake chat. <laughs> Um, but it's funny, as a child, yeah, I just remember the same, like, you know, you'd be holding snakes, mostly tree snakes as a kid, yeah. but green tree snakes, like, wrapped around your arms and things like that, all the different fairs and shows you'd go to, it'll be like, you know, yeah. holding on to the snakes. I do have a memory, though, of when they had a, oh, just so un-PC, at school, at the school fair, they had, it must have been some form of very big python like rainforest python, and they were feeding whole chickens to this python at the school at the school fair. There's like small children running around and this giant snake, and it would have been, I mean, I was a kid, so probably exaggerating, but it would have been about 10 metres long. And 
it was eating whole chickens and you could see them still moving inside the snake's belly. Yeah, it was like one of the attractions at the school fair. So actually, I'm actually, I don't mind snakes too much, although not fond of the brown snakes. So avoid those at all costs. My other claim to fame was at primary school, there was a goanna in the classroom. Do you know goannas? They're like monitor lizard. This one's probably five feet long. And I don't know what I was thinking, but I decided I should catch it. So I caught it and it was a bit cold and it was going nuts and its tail and everything. I told my dad later that day because I thought those lizards all just had sort of plates in their mouth, not teeth. He's like, they've got great big teeth. And it's like, well, I've got to be brought home to Skulls one that he found in the paddock. And yeah, sure enough, they've got these great big needle teeth. He's so, like, oh my God, sorry, I never caught a goanna again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, and they can be crazy aggressive, right? And they're, well, mm. on a warm day, they're super quick. Yeah, we, unfortunately, um, South Australia is the most cleared state, so we don't have a lot of trees, but where there are still trees, which are all Mallee scrub, they're like a multi-stem gum tree. If you, you probably don't see it much now, but you would occasionally see goanna just like honing across the paddock and then up a tree because they eat um, the carrion eaters. They'll eat dead sheep and everything. They, they're like little tomato dragons. They sort of look like a little version of that. Did you know that the whole story was a certified B Corp? Well, we are. But what does that mean? B Corps are businesses that are committed to balancing purpose and profit as a means of being a force for good in the world. But that commitment goes beyond good intentions. The truth is, any business can claim to be sustainable or socially responsible. However, without validation, they're just words. So B Corp certification gives them meaning. It provides visibility into the things that we're doing and the impact that we're having. B Corp certification is a demanding process that includes the B Impact Assessment that evaluates how our operations and business models impact workers, the community, the environment and customers. Unlike other certifications, B Corp certification doesn't just evaluate a product, process or service, it measures the company's entire social and environmental impact. It's the only certification program of its kind and it uses rigorous assessment framework that lends credibility to companies that achieve it. It gives confidence to the growing number of customers that want to buy and work with purpose-driven brands. So when you're next making a purchasing decision or a brand partnership decision, look for the B in the circle. That way you can know with certainty that the organisation you're dealing with is committed to being a force for good in the world. And so I guess let's jump back to sustainability for a wee minute. And I wanted to know, with your experience with both within Greystone and Food Farm, what have been some of the low-hanging fruit with regards to sustainability initiatives that you've put in place? Probably at Greystone, the thing that we um, feel has got the most potential is what we call in a high-wire trial where we lifted the vines up so that their fruiting zone is about 1.7 litres above the ground. We went from conventional viticulture and then we went to organic viticulture and we did what almost everyone does when you go from conventional to organic. You basically sell your herbicide unit and get a cultivator and you cultivate under vine. So where what's called the vine strip is, which is about 87 metres under vine, instead of spraying it, you cultivate it. And that's what you do when you start organics because that's just what feels right. Yeah, of course, on slopes and stuff, you start getting soil erosion, you know, with all those principles of regen that we know about, you know, minimising soil disturbance and soil armour and all that stuff, you're not doing that. So the soil's washing down the hill. And then because you're running a row crop and you've only got 
a two and a half meter row and you put a rack down that and then you drop your chapter tire in it and you've only got a three-ton tractor with a three-ton spray rig behind it you're not in charge of where that thing's going you're just going to go down the hill where the rack is the viticulturalist mike who now does the job i was doing is like we've got to stop doing this we can't keep cultivating you hear she stopped where you control and sound blocks and didn't really tell me <laughs> just stop doing it and you know in really well-established blocks where the vines are quite big they can cope with that but with say okay we need to be able to use sheep as their weeding tool so we're doing a trial we've got the vines up quite high which seems obvious but from a wine purist point of view that canopy management that needs to occur for high quality wines where you need about three feet of canopy we, we've run out of posts we don't have any post height so the vines are flopping over and well, that's got wine challenges that we're working through at the moment but if we can get through that we've just got steel and tube have made some why shapes for us that we put on the post and it's sort of making the shoots go outwards and if we can get that to work we drop you know, tractor passes from 30 a year to 15. so imagine if we could develop something that's successful and you roll that across like Marlborough that's growing 85 percent of New Zealand's wine production and has all that grass in there and we're either we're herbiciding it and mowing it like constantly because there's wine problems if you don't for all sorts of reasons and we can just graze it with either sheep or another grazing animal and cycle all the nutrients. And there's also a couple of other jobs. Vines grow shoots on the trunk where you don't want them. Um, and we have to rub them off or cut them off. But, you know, the, um, the sheep love eating them. So, like, that's all win-win-win, really. And so I, I truly believe that we'll be successful. We're only in the second year of it now. Um, and I think we're going to pull it off. So once we are happy with how the trial's going, we'll roll it out. Um, we've got 50 hectares of beer in, in the company, so we'd roll it across that. Um, and I reckon that'll be really exciting. I'd love to see more people sort of getting into that and in, in for us to be able to grow wine in a way that just uses much less resources than is currently. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely so many wins to that when you think about it from you know, just a fossil fuel footprint perspective, from a labour perspective, from a um, like a system stacking and revenue system stacking perspective for putting the sheep yep. underneath, um, but also from a chemical inputs reduction perspective too. So, I mean, and they're just the ones off the top of my head. So what mm. an amazing um, initiative that's actually just got so many wins to it. Yeah, and at, at home for us it's probably been... Well, when we got here first and started growing vegetables, we, we were still rotary hoeing, really, and raking out the beds and stuff. And over time, the soil structure is starting to struggle. And, you know, the last few seasons where we've had real uh, Nina seasons, we're actually getting, like, flooding in, in the garden. We used to grow vegetables for CSAs, like community-supported agriculture. So we'd be growing vegetables for 15 families, and they'd have an eight-week subscription. we send them a fish crate of vegetables for 45 bucks and stuff like that. So Angela loves researching i don't really i would rather just do it so when she tells me what research is i'll be like good i'll go and do that i'm not really interested in researching it over and over and over and so you know raised beds no till so for us fortunately we're able to get mushroom compost really effectively here and just building up the beds with it um you know we used to build compost piles in a compost area and then cut all the compost into the vegetable beds now we just build the compost pile on the vegetable bed and you know, you get that leachate that everyone worries about. Well, if compost leachate's going into the ground under my vegetable bed where I'm putting perennial vegetables, that's, that's fine with me. Um, so raising the vegetable beds here in the vegetable garden at the food farm's been super effective. And also, focusing on diversity with the food forest type planting. So 
your first sort of food tree plantings is really a tiny orchard. And now we're trying to establish communities. So you've got like orchard trees and then shrubs and leguminous shrubs and ground covers and that sort of stuff. So all those things together are really exciting on the food farm. And I feel like uh, they're the way forward in terms of having a perennial diverse system that'll be here in the future and providing a lot of food for whoever's you know, needs it. Yeah. And also community sufficiency is one thing that we talk about as well. Self-sufficiency is great, but it's punishing. Like, you know, and also obviously you never going to grow chocolate and bananas and stuff like that. It costs you a bit. Why bother growing asparagus yourself or something? If there's someone just down the road that grows an awesome asparagus, you should have you know, just work together either through a farmer's market or trading systems or whatever. Oh, you're speaking to my heart there. I'm so passionate about I used to be very passionate about self-sufficiency. And then mm. you start on that journey. And it came from John Seymour's book. Is it John Seymour? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we yeah, had on our yeah. bookshelf when I was growing yeah. up. And I remember flicking through it. And it's like, oh, I'm going to have all those things. And all yeah, this. and I thought, that's me. That's me as a grown-up. Yeah. Like, that is yeah. it. That's, I'll be I just I'll need be done. 35 hours a day and that'll be great. I know. And then I tried to fit that kind of lifestyle in around everything I do. And I went, this is actually, this is not sustainable or sustainability at all. For exactly that reason, right? Like the first time I reflected on it was like, right, how are we going to do dairy? Because I don't have a house cow and I don't really want a house cow. I don't really want to milk a cow. Where am I going to get my milk from? Okay, we need to figure out. And do I have any more time in my day to make cheese and butter? And I went, hang on, actually, there's a better way of doing this. And there might be someone down the road who's A, got a dairy farm, B, likes making cheese, likes making butter, and maybe we could have sort of a bit of a barter system where actually, you know, where's things that I'm good at or I like to do, we could we'd trade those. And I just think that community sufficiency, like create self-sufficiency in communities, because it's an inefficient use of resources if we're all trying to do everything. You know, if you're heating the oven to bake bread and you're baking one loaf of bread, you might as well be heating the oven to make 10 loaves of bread. If you're making jams and chutneys and sauces and things, you might as well be making a big batch, do it all at once, and people who are good at it, do it in bulk and then share out amongst others. And I think that building community self-sufficiency or local self-sufficiency is so much more important than everybody trying to go it alone and do everything themselves because that's not sustainable at all. I guess it's kind of how a village used to work. And it brings lots of other benefits too where people are connecting and sharing and if someone has a good year with the yeah, you know, God forbid, bloody courgettes or something. Come on, someone will have a freaking courgette. Everybody get the courgette. Everybody's a winner. So, you know, the cow's got in and out yours or something. It's surplus, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, it just creates uh, it's that term I really like at the moment, like that abundance. It creates sort of a mm. bit of abundance in your, in your community rather than scarcity, which is something after COVID I think people are really looking for. I think we truly got a taste of what scarcity could look like in our food systems and that left a lot of people feeling really uncomfortable. So, What about when you, know, you go in the supermarket and you just look at the poor people staring at the bloody eggs and there's no eggs there. We're fortunate enough to have some chookies, but um, you know, that would be, that'd be pretty tough. Like, particularly some people, eggs are a really important part of their diet and then it was just they were really hard to get and then they're really expensive yeah. and so, oh, I'll get some chickens, but not realising that chicken, but it's either really expensive or it's full of DKE, which you might not be down for, or just buying chickens got really expensive because everybody wanted one. Um, one of our daughters is dairy and soy intolerant, so eggs are actually a really important part of her diet. And yes, we've got chickens too. It's wonderful. When they're laying, I feel at the moment I'm a gold dealer, but over the winter they stopped laying. 
And all of a sudden I was in that situation of being forced to go to the supermarket and look on the shelves for eggs and finding there was either none there or I'd need to set up a second mortgage just to buy some eggs to feed my daughter. So definitely can relate. That's all that knowledge, eh? Like everything's seasonal, including eggs. And if you want to have eggs in, in winter, you have to make sure your point of lace are only just crashing in the point of lay of winter, but who remembers that stuff anymore, you know? Like, no. we just, we think everything's seasonal. We should be able no. to have a tomato in July and it should be delicious and not cost very much. Well, guess what? You can't. Yeah. And things like that. You referred to the courgettes before. I mean, it's like when you've got an abundance, also, you know, learning how to store food and actually mm. preserve food for the seasons when it's not in season. So, uh, yeah, definitely a lot of courgette in the freezer, a lot of courgette pickle. And yep. I ended up freezing eggs this year. Yeah. Yeah, they're right yeah. for baking, eh? I never really They're right for yet. baking. Yeah, no, they're no good for no good for a poached egg. No, no, I'm pretty sure my grandparents' day, they would like rub in with Vaseline or something and store them in a, in a cellar. And stuff like that to stop the yeah. But there's lots of things like that. My guess is what you grew up with. Like here, butter just used to live in the cupboard at home on the farm, and it, it was rancid. And I grew up with that, so I didn't really worry about that. Angela hates rancid butter, you know. But yeah, rancid butter and flowery apples. That was my childhood. <laughs> my grandma. She used to feed you raw quinces. I don't know why. And she used to grind up an eggshell and put it in the custard because she decided that you needed more calcium. Probably yeah. good for you. A bit gritty. Probably but... was, but it was, it was pretty gritty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, if you've ever tasted some of the new concoctions that people have put into their bodies, if you had pea protein powder, that's pretty gritty too. You know, oh, yes. But egg, eggshell and custard, it's not, not very different from Precision that really. protein might be a, that would have to be another podcast. Oh, yes. So I guess then we did touch on some stuff around home that's exciting you, but Let's bring it out longer term. What's exciting you most about either one of the businesses over the next five years? Probably, yeah, I'm really lucky and grateful that I'm able to, I don't work full time for Greystone. So I have a, I have 20% of my week I spend on the food farm and we've got the opportunity there as it gets more established to, to bring more people on top. We've just established a, a year, like as a little space for, for teaching people, having workshops and little events and stuff. So that's really cool. I feel like the food farms now at a stage where I'm confident that we're able to bring people onto it and have something to show them. Whereas a few years ago, I wouldn't say I was embarrassed, but I certainly wouldn't have been in that situation. And just really grateful of having the flexibility to be able to do that. And now that people are traveling again, we have amazing woofers from all over the world. And they, it's like, where I haven't traveled, you know, I've only been to Australia and New Zealand, we straight from school to farming, education, working sort of thing. And, and it's, uh, I would love to travel um, in the near future, but it's just great meeting people and having people come onto the farm and share their perspectives. And particularly we get a lot of chefs and having an ingredient that you've grown for a long time and worked with, but getting someone and they just work with it completely differently in a way that you've never seen before is really amazing. And it's all, it's just sharing things as well, which is fabulous. And that grey start the sedep that we've got coming up. So <clears throat> we were planning to go to Australia. We hadn't been back for ages and we had a COVID in the family, you know, we couldn't go pre-Christmas and we had to reschedule and go in April, which, so I'm the general manager of a wine company and I just wasn't there during the middle of vintage and the place never skipped a beat. And I, I just loved that. Like I, I, I'm not a control freak. I don't need to be there overlooking everything. So we've now got this business that's got so much depth in the vineyard, the winery, sales and marketing administration, all that sort of stuff that the 
team have all got amazing ideas and they're working together and firing off each other. So I can just see that sort of moving into a new sort of part of its life, I guess. And it gives me the opportunity to, you know, spend time on my own projects and that sort of stuff, which is great. I, I haven't quite identified what the next big project is yet. We'll have to wait and see, yeah. In all that spare time of yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's a really important point you raised there is actually that taking an approach almost to make yourself dispensable. Mm. So if you set yourself up that every endeavor you embark upon can actually operate without you there, it creates the space for the next opportunity. Because the last thing you want to do is be so busy being busy and controlling everything that you never actually create the space for what might come next. Oh, t- yeah, that's yeah. And the people that are running those key functions and putting your teams and stuff, like, yeah. if they feel that ownership and that, that they've got the, the ability to make it their own, they'll do it their way. And it won't be how you would have done it, but it doesn't mean that it's not going to be awesome. So, and then that's their baby. And, you know, it's, I wish that's great. Yeah. Yeah. It might even be better. <laughs> yeah, totally. My team definitely has better ideas than me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. they yeah, say well, that's they, the secret to a good team right though you mean to surround yourself with people with great are, people yeah yeah i'm just the classic enabler yeah just wrangle them all together and watch the magic happen yeah 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 next question then is what has been some of the best farming advice you've ever received it was actually an old guy that i worked for at the start of my career in vineyards and he was just You've got to make a decision and you've got to do something. He was like, so pre- avoiding paralysis by analysis. You know, you get so many people, they're going to plant a garden or they're going to start regen practices, but they, they can't start yet because they haven't got the right cedar or they plant, can't plant a garden because they're waiting for this amazing little fort that they need and they haven't been able to afford it yet. It's just like you start something and don't, yeah, it probably suits my mindset too is I, don't do paralysis, I've got to keep moving. But yeah, try something. And even if it's a small thing, then don't allow yourself to get stuck. If you get stuck, you either pull yourself out or put your hand out and get someone to pull you out of the rut. Yeah, no, that's such great advice. Well, back then, the, when he gave me that advice, I was running a, the biggest work crew I'd ever dealt with, probably about 50 people. He's just like, you're the boss. And if work stops, yeah, it's costing, you know, he did the numbers, you know, $1,000 an hour or whatever it is. It's just like, you can't stop. You don't stop. If you need to make a decision, make a decision. If it turns out if it was a wrong decision and the wheels fall off later, you just need to be able to justify to me why you made that decision at the time. And if you're thinking of sound, I'll back you. That's the thing, right? Like, you can actually change as you go and you can adapt. Like, adaptive management. Uh, just start something and get the wheels in motion and then observe, learn, change, grow. Keep on moving. Thank you till you make it. secret to life right and so another mindset piece with the fast pace of change at the moment and I guess a never-ending to-do list that's constantly coming at us within agriculture at the moment how do you yourself prevent overwhelm burnout or even worse apathy and stand up to face that challenge yeah I'm sure we all deal with that in our own way but for me I'm not on any social media at all you know Facebook was a thing. I just wasn't drawn to it. And when Instagram started, I started an account and I looked at it and found myself feeling out of control really quickly, like it was controlling me and I didn't like it. So I'd never been on it again. And so I feel fortunate in that I don't 
get stuck scrolling on my phone unless I choose to look at some news or mostly I'm looking at the weather because I'm so excited. So that's sort of my secret weapon is I'm not on social media because I just, I don't know how people do it. Eh? Like I struggle to not reply to people or, you know, when you've got that much information coming at you, oh, I wouldn't be able to process it. I can't half process things. I either got to do it or not. So I just don't, I choose not to. So that's, that's one of the things for me. And all the normal stuff like, you know, eat well, don't drink too much, don't drink too much coffee, exercise, all the rest of it. But, yeah, my son, my youngest one, Flynn, he's 15 and he's getting into exercise now. So it's been a really another reason to make time for exercise. So uh, he hates running. So we, we go to the gym and we go to the gym together. And, you know, I can see the day coming where he's going to be pushing more weight than dad or whatever. And, again, like, I'm not going to be upset about that. I'm going to be stoked, you know, like, you know, that's, that's cool. So... So all those things we know that we should do. And like, for instance, as I've gotten older, I've become really aware of I'm not a great sleeper. And sometimes even something like coffee, you know, it's so widespread. But for me, if I drink too much coffee, it could totally give me the heart tremors and all the rest of it. So just being aware of yourself, I suppose, and going, okay, you don't need that extra coffee. You've got to go for a walk. And then during COVID, when it was so stressful, particularly being the manager of Greystone and I felt really personally responsible for where they're always because at the time so I existed in the world now we we don't not have a job anymore or whatever it is I felt really really responsible for all those people and it did weigh heavily on me and just going for a walk for me you know the green space blue space is really really powerful for me the, I didn't grow up near the sea but um I find the sea really powerful so if I'm really stressed, we're fortunate that we can get to sea reasonably easily. And going for a walk is good, um, but going for a walk on the sea is even better for me. Yeah, I think it's yeah. probably rhythm and all that sort of stuff. And doing things that are, are mindful, which I learned to ski when I was 40, and I'm a shit skier, um, so I'm going to really concentrate. And so I can't, if I'm skiing, I can't think about anything else. <laughs> so that's a great stress relentless. Like I spend a day... You know, you get up early, you're exhausted at the end of the day, and like because I got to concentrate so hard, I can't be thinking about anything else. And for me, um, the other thing's diving. Like I grew up diving in South Australia, and diving in New Zealand's just so different to diving in South Australia. I find that a really mindful thing too, because it completely overtakes what you're doing, and you absolutely have to focus on it. Um, so having those things, and also, you know, whether you see seeing white knots, ads, or whatever it is. And you've got to give yourself time out. You just can't work 20 hours a day and sleep for four and keep doing that. You can do it for a, a little while because it's harvest or carving or lambing or something, but you can't do that and then roll into the next season, next season, and next season. And that is something to be aware of when we talk about diverse farming systems. You have multiple harvests and pick periods, and that is something that's tricky to manage, like, you know, if you're running a monoculture, you have a, you have these main periods, but you start running multiple production systems and you've got multiple harvest periods and stuff. You've got to be able to resource your operation and manage all them because otherwise you'll just kill yourself running. Yeah, and we've definitely found that in, yeah, the more enterprises you stack, that those traditional quiet times don't kind of come anymore because there's generally something to do with something. It's something this lambing season actually for those who don't know I rear lambs in a shed so at lambing time it's pretty busy and full-on and this year I actually have made a really conscious effort to keep up my gym routine so four days a week heading up to the gym and that wow that's amazing so, four times crazy I struggle with two so yeah four's pretty 
Yeah, but just makes such a difference. You're still having the long days, tired days, tough moments and stressful moments. But I think just that, it's a phrase we used before, but that resiliency, that bounce back is so much faster because you really prioritize looking after yourself and moving your body and getting out that kind of, sometimes it's just getting rid of the tension in a productive way. And, and having little uh, secret stashes of chocolate all over the place. How did you know? <laughs> I'm not actually normally a fan of chocolate, but yeah, there seems to be some lying around the office. Uh, it's the secret to being a facilitator. You've generally got facilitation snacks hiding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just got a, got a sneak preview of my um, 17-year-old daughter in her formal dress. We're going to drop her down to her friend's place this afternoon to get her hair done, and she's off to her formal. So it's funny how they, when your kids are little, you feel like, I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm going to be changing nappies for the rest of my life. You know, this is what this is what life feels like. It's just babies and nappies and not sleeping. And then before you know it, they're at school and then they're at high school and then they got a car license and they're not home anymore. Hang on to that on a bad day. <laughs> yeah, I'll hold on to that while I'm, in, while I'm in the trenches with my two-year-old. So last question then, Nick, and I'll leave you to your busy day. We like to leave our listeners back down at the ground level with things that they can go out and get started and do on the farm. So if you had one take-home sustainability tip for other farming businesses, what would it be? In one word, for me, it's diversity. It can be diversity in your commercial operation or even just diversity in that you, you're doing this one proper operation that you've decided to grow some of your own food. And it might just be something really easily like you know potatoes or or anything really but i think that in the long term diversity is going to prove to be the winner yeah yeah so if you can increase your diversity a little bit either in your production system or your workforce or how you spend your time or just break up some routines or something like that i'm sure yeah at the time it can be challenging but there's always good that flows from it yeah yeah, and that's such good advice and that really I hadn't thought about it in those different layering contexts. You know, it doesn't seem to matter where you put diversity in the mix. It always seems to win. It might not in the short term, though. It takes initial yeah. investment and, you know, your short-term yields or whatever might be down, but if you're playing a long game, and I think we should all consider we're playing a long game, diversity, yeah. Great advice. Thank you so much for your time today and I will leave you to all of the million other things that you've got to get done, especially spending some time with your daughter. That's such an exciting milestone to reach. I mean, my kids, two, five, and seven, it feels like such a long way to go, but I know that, that time yeah. will fly. So Yeah, um, yeah you look back. Yeah. It does. It seems like a long time at the time, but then you look back and it's like, oh, my God, we they did it all good. Yeah, and hopefully you spent the years having some form of positive impact. I get through each day and I was like, oh, were we net positive <laughs> impact today? Or <laughs> We'll find out. Been a good afternoon. Thanks, Bex. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for the chat. Man, I love catching up with Nick. He's one of those people that when he talks, it's always worth a listen. Now let's deep dive into some of the SDGs that our conversation related to. I think firstly, goal number two, zero hunger, is one that we covered in relation to Nick and Angela's work at the food farm. Building food system security and resiliency is such crucial work, and I want to take the time to reflect upon that and what it means to them as a family and also the sacrifices they make in the aid of that mahi. And broader than that, what they're trying to build is community. 
which links directly to goal number 11, sustainable cities and communities. We also raised the interesting conversation of resource use efficiency when it comes to food production, which leads into goal number 12, responsible consumption and production. Navigating a food system that is not only responsible in its human resource, energy and expertise efficiency with regards to the food farm and community food resilience, but then leading into Greystone's innovation building efficiency of energy and farm system stacking into the winery business. This allows for more resilience into the business and a lighter footprint on the planet. Nick shared with us a lot of the personal efforts he makes in the pursuit of goal number three, good health and well-being, especially in his conscious commitment to avoid social media. This for him has huge positive benefits and lightens the load for him mentally. Goal number eight, decent work and economic growth, is a key goal that I'd like to reflect upon, with Nick's conscious effort to make himself dispensable in the workplace. This empowerment and ownership he gives the team is resulting in a business that is thriving, with Greystone having just been awarded three distinguished trophies for their 2021 Organic Chardonnay at the 2023 International Wine Challenge. A huge achievement as these awards are judged blind by some of the world's most respected wine experts. And in the words of their winemaker, Dom Maxwell, this is proof that you can have a sustainable organic approach and still make incredible wines that stand up to the classic wines of the world. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Whole Story Podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it and are feeling inspired and optimistic about putting sustainability into practice on farm. I have one last request for you before you go. Make sure, whatever platform you're listening to us on, that you hit follow and share the show or episodes with your friends, so that together we can grow our community and inspire sustainability and agriculture in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And thanks again to FMG for partnering with The Whole Story so that we could bring this podcast to life for you all to enjoy. Catch you next time.